This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Next is Rascal Does Not Dream of Bunny Girl Senpai. Having a bunny girl in the show title and key visual for the series probably gives the wrong impression. It draws notice by being outside expectations. It turns out, the reference is being used in-universe for exactly this conspicuous nature, a pragmatic way of detecting attention. It's not sex appeal just to add sex appeal, but the characters also don't act like it was completely innocuous. It's a tiny part of the opening story, but it fixes the main girl in our protagonist's mind due to its outlandishness. Since the key part of their relationship starts from him noticing her when no one else did, Giving her some visual way she stands out provides an immediate image for us to fix on as to why the guy would alter his normal behavior. Now, this idea of disruption feels like it would be important. Both characters have been shifted out of their familiar worlds by the same affliction, the adolescent syndrome or puberty syndrome or whatever they will decide to call it. Um, the show reminds me a little bit of those key visual novel adaptations um, where there is a light little supernatural element that is not really the focus, but creates a slightly unfamiliar setting for the character dramas to play out. Um, I imagine people will immediately be reminded of both uh, Oregaru uh, and the Monogatari series, owing to largely to how dialogue dense the series is so far. It's not as overtly supernatural or stylized as Monogatari, um, and at the moment, it feels like it will be a little more romantic and soft than Origaru. But all three of those anime share a pattern of main characters talking past each other without constantly stopping to react, which leads to conversations that quickly dive past surface-level chatter and into subjects diverse and profound, and sometimes ridiculous. Both of our main characters display a very limited range of external emotion, but their dialogue betrays this as facade. I think both feel a wide range of things, uh, whether or not they are eager to cop to it. I must say, this was one of those rare episodes that made me immediately want to watch it again. I know we're not doing full-spectrum analysis this season, but so far, this would have been on the short list for consideration. It's just very... careful, you know? It's composed with a lot of intention, and it's prizing subtlety over being perfectly understood. Um, it's a rich experience already, and it flashes a lot of promise. Uh, but I gotta tell you, I think I can feel the sadness coming from the outset. If they keep giving us genuine characters, it's probably going to get rough at some point, um, but it's probably going to be worth it too. Next on our list is our Bunny Girl Senpai show. Um, even though I have said that some shows will come and go in our little casual roundup, I seriously doubt that this show will ever drop off. Um, I could spend 20 minutes on every conversation between Mai and Sakura and all the things they don't say or say sideways and the ways each tries to simultaneously show and hide their intent. 
They have such instant chemistry, and they would probably be falling into each other with ease except for the seriousness of their crisis. The uncertainty of what is happening to Mai and what has happened to Sakuda and his sister stays their hand, and the inexperience each has with this sort of thing leaves them alternating between saying too much and not saying enough. Anyway, here's a few observations for going forward. One is that we are now at the early morning of May 26 with them falling asleep in the hotel room. The opening scene for the series was May 29th, the one where he is reading the journal entries that he has written for himself. It appears he has forgotten May at this point, just days from now, and her name in the journal seems to be blotted out. In the second episode, we see that same phenomenon with her mother's email. Mai's vanishing presence doesn't erase the mail, but it shrouds who it came from, and this appears to be linked to her mother forgetting that Mai exists. This reinforces the notion that he's forgotten her by the 29th. However, what does not get blotted out in his journal is the descriptor of the wild bunny girl. The conspicuous nature of that stunt might come back around to have a secondary purpose if he does end up losing memory of her name. It once again gives a visual anchor for his focus. We also get to see the scene that he was remembering just before waking on the 29th with her saying, why don't we kiss, and a few fuzzy images of what turn out to be the hotel room. I'd like to suggest that this memory lingering there at that opening means that their exchange in bed at the end of the second episode made a particularly strong impression on him. It's one of several standout scenes in the episode. Because of the mostly deadpan nature of their banter, it's often easy to be confused about whether one of them is being earnest or just trying to get a rise out of the other. In fact, I think each of them doesn't always guess right about the other's intent moment to moment. Her proposing a kiss apropos of nothing appears like it is teasing, and they do later make light of it. Um, this whole conversation seems calm and banter as usual, but I actually think she is terrified of what is happening to her and wants the contact with another person. She asks him to tell her a story. She proposes the kiss, and then she asks what he'd do if she starts trembling and crying that she doesn't want to disappear. I think she actually would have gone for the kiss in that moment, but because he responds as though he believes she's joking, it becomes a joke instead. Likewise, when he gives an earnest answer about what he'd do if she was crying about disappearing, she instead is the one who turns it around into a joke. I'm glad he didn't go for it though. Um, she really just wants a connection in her fear, and so a kiss in these circumstances would lack any genuine quality. Even though she makes light of his answer about holding her and whispering reassurance, that is actually what she really needs to hear. She is sincerely thankful at the end of that scene. Now, despite her saying that this was his one chance to steal her first kiss, that actually makes me think it's likely to happen. She routinely says things as though they are absolutes and then reveals that they are anything but. She expressly said that their Sunday meetup was not a date but ends up being the one who refers to it as a date at several points. She declares she will go home if he's even a minute late, but waits over an hour and a half for him. But, since he was still dreaming of that moment and the apparent missed opportunity, I'm going to guess it hasn't happened by the time the 29th rolls around. That's not a lot of time though, right? The two of them didn't speak for two weeks, 
and yet now they have accelerated toward one another. What in the world will happen between now and that very first scene? There's a few other things I want to bring up, though I'll try to keep it short because I could easily get carried away with this one. Um, one is that we learn who the girl briefly mentioned in the first episode is, uh, Makinohara Shoko, at least, sort of. Sakuta met her during his own run-in with Adolescent Syndrome, and she was a source of strength and reassurance, the same role he was hoping to play for Mai. He fell in love with this girl, which could very well be a product of that extreme situation, and could very well be part of what is happening between him and Mai right now. However, the girl either never existed or had all trace of herself erased. There are no records of her in that high school. That seems to share at least some parallels with Mai, right? Even the part where Sakuta remembers her, but she has otherwise vanished. But the other parallel is with the school, something that his science-minded friend Futaba suggested may be related to Mai's ongoing crisis as well. Adolescent syndrome sounds like it can manifest in quite a few ways after all, but it's possible all of them are linked to school or their peers in some way. Another thing I want to mention is the run-in with the girl whose butt he kicked. Man, he really went for it, didn't he? This man believes in gender equality. Anyway, that scene was about as classic of a meet-cute as it gets. Since both of them have appointments they are late for, they even have a ready-made topic of conversation the next time they cross paths. If that scene had happened first in our anime, we would naturally assume that we were going to watch her and Sakuta strike up romance at some point. Because it instead happens after he's already involved with Mai, it instead seems kind of random. But if he does lose track of Mai, then this meeting might as well be the beginning of the story for some kind of romantic entanglement. Of course, he's going to be puzzled about what his own appointment was if he's forgotten Mai by then, and it's going to be gut-wrenching for the audience to watch him go about this. Now, I could totally be wrong here, too. She might simply be another person who will go through adolescent syndrome. All the asides about being on her phone and worried about losing her friends if she doesn't respond seems like a setup to a crisis a little bit like Kaede's but there was definitely a reason they wanted to insert that meeting between them at this point in our story, and it gives me a pretty ominous feeling. Lastly, I really liked how much we learned about Mai from a single scene this time, uh, the one where Sakuta confronts her with what he learned about the reason she left showbiz. She slaps him for his temerity and the insinuation that she was being hasty but not because he was wrong about her wanting to go back to acting. He saw through her obstinacy and anger at her mother to what she really wanted, and he called her out on it, that she was effectively cutting off her nose to spite her face. She is mad at her mother and herself as much as anything else, but it wells up and gets taken out on him. He cuts through to a very vulnerable part of her, and she lashes out when someone gets that close but she doesn't actually think less of him. In fact, she immediately puts herself out to promise an exclusive to the announcer lady if it will protect him from having his picture put on the news. Once composed, she can admit that she was lying to herself about what she wanted and that he was right about what he had said. She apologizes for the slap and immediately proposes the date. 
that might seem like quite the turnaround, but I think in reality, she has trouble with her own sense of self, and Sakota's ability to see her as she is both discombobulates her and comforts her. She doesn't always know how to react to honesty when it is directed at her. Perhaps this is an artifact of being an actress, someone who is always pretending to be someone else. Maybe it is just that artificial public persona of hers that needs to disappear, that is disappearing, and she may later get the chance to be a more honest version of herself. This adolescent syndrome may not be a curse, in fact. It may instead be some kind of transformation. Painful to go through, but beneficial in hindsight. Much like adolescence itself. I guess we will see. Our Bunny Girl Senpai anime has turned to physics concepts for some robust symbolism with the third episode and the teaser for the fourth. I want to stress that these are most likely meant as metaphor, not mechanics. This isn't a hard or even soft sci-fi show, and we aren't supposed to believe that concepts like the observer effect are literally affecting things on a macro level. Rather, some of the unintuitive and difficult to grasp aspects of physics at the quantum level make a neat parallel to the equally inscrutable phenomenon called love. It's much clearer that they are going for metaphor in the short after-credit teaser, where Sakuta is warning us that more adolescent syndrome situations are in store, saying that after Schrodinger's cat, Laplace's demon, no, Laplace's petite devil appeared. Petite devil here is meant as idiom, I think, um, so we'll worry about it next time. Laplace's demon, though, is another physics reference. It's not accurate to say that it's the opposite of Schrodinger's cat, but where Schrodinger's cat comes from the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics and the uncertainty principle and all that, um, where there are multiple outcomes existing in superposition, Laplace's demon is about determinism. The idea that if you knew enough information, the future would be just as plain to you as the past because all outcomes are already in motion. Demon here just meant some vast intelligence capable of holding the precise location and momentum of every atom in its head at once. An intelligence that could do so would be able to see the future because all interactions are caused by previous interactions, and previous interactions to those stretching all the way back to the beginning. It's the idea that there are not multiple possible outcomes awaiting an observation or measurement to collapse into one. There was simply always a single, already determined progression for all events. Fate, in a sense, or at least a lack of true free will. It's a thought experiment just like Schrodinger's cat, a way of making really unintuitive concepts a little easier to internalize, and is a good century older than our cat-in-the-box example. Anyway, by contrast with Laplace's demon, and considering Futaba's talk about measurement effect and Schrodinger and all that, we can definitely think of the Copenhagen interpretation as metaphor for the state of Mai and Sakota's relationship. Futaba explained that the uncertainty of what had happened inside the sealed box meant that Schrodinger's cat was half dead and half alive, or at least that's how it's translated, but that's not really how the example was supposed to work. Rather, the cat is considered to be both alive and dead. Both possibilities exist in superposition to one another. 
It's not until you actually open the box and look in that the two possibilities collapse into one, either dead or alive. Until someone observes or measures, the best you have is possibilities. Schrodinger's question was, when exactly does this quantum superposition stop and become one outcome or the other? Apply that concept to the state of Mai and Sakoto's relationship leading up to the middle or so of this third episode. Is it an unlikely friendship between classmates? Is it two people keeping company because of the same unique experience? Or is it the first tentative steps of romance? At exactly what point can you say that it changes from one to another? Each of them also has an uncertainty about how the other truly feels, partially due to their two styles of verbal fencing. They both protect themselves with their rhetoric, hiding something as vulnerable as earnest feelings with a type of plausible deniability. Sakata exaggerates his adoration of Mai in a way that could easily be just teasing or humorous hyperbole. Maybe there is a small kernel of truth in what he says, or maybe just his way of getting a rise out of his senpai. As long as it's just words, Mai can't truly know which possibility is the real one. They both seem to exist in superposition. Likewise for Mai, her aggressiveness with both words and physicality may be her way of reacting to an attraction she feels but wants to cover up, or she might really mean a little bit of it because it's her method of pushing him away or hinting that her interest is limited. Sakata also can't truly know. He can only guess at which outcome may be more likely. This slippery nature of words and their two different styles are on display in the key scene for this episode, a study session on the night of the 28th. Mai is quizzing him on kanji homophones, words that sound the same but have different meanings depending on which kanji is used to represent them. The spoken word has multiple possible meanings, and it's not until it's written down that it collapses into one meaning or the other. Understand? Each of them also uses different example sentences that reflect their two verbal fencing styles that I already mentioned, Mai with seeming hostility and Sakata with exaggerated boldness, for which she lightly swats him. That entire exchange is their relationship in microcosm. The reason I say it's the key scene is because this is the memory of her that reverses the disappearing process. It's not the note he left to himself, and it's not the unexpected presence of a bunny girl costume in his room. Both of these he manages to dismiss, which rather increases our apprehension that he will have forgotten her for good. Instead, running across the same kanji problem brings back an image of her pointing to each symbol, and that leads to more images, on and on, until he finally gets a sharp look at her face, that time in the bunny suit when she first really caught his attention. Now, why is the kanji quiz the thing that reaches across the supernatural divide to make him remember her? It's the key scene not because it's the first memory he recalls, but rather why that's the memory that he recalls. You see, what is happening in that scene is the two of them doing something more than just talking. When I watched this the first time, and his head starts to nod, and she doesn't react at all, I thought, ah crap. She doesn't know what it means if he falls asleep. But then you see the empty pill blister, and she begins to pat his head, and I thought, oh, she loves him. What is happening in the scene 
is both of them taking on undesirable situations for the good of the other. He is trying to stay up for days on end and probably tanking his midterms so he won't forget her. And she is going to force him to stop that destructive behavior even though it means she'll be alone. Each is willing to suffer so that the other doesn't have to. They each demonstrate that they will take on the other's pain if they can. As long as they are just having witty exchanges and teasing one another, then what they have could be any number of things, any number of possibilities. But when they both take action like this, with unambiguous intent, those possibilities collapse into just one. They love each other. They opened up the box, and they found that the cat was still alive. Thus, what Sakuda does upon first remembering her is the exact opposite of what he has been doing with his words. He shouts out how he feels in no uncertain terms, making every single one of his classmates a witness. There is no ambiguity here, no plausible deniability, no more multiple outcomes in superposition. He loves her, full stop. His antics disrupt the atmosphere that may be our main culprit, and Mai takes the opportunity to do something similar for him. I have a lot to say about the atmosphere concept, but I know I'm going to get more chances, so we are going to save that discussion for another week. Rather, I just wanted to focus on the way physics appear to make good metaphor and the way the series is leveraging it. Physics is an odd beast, and while it is the closest thing to the study of the most fundamental rules of existence, it's also the field with some of the wildest divergence of accepted or studied theories. So many of the fundamental underpinnings are unintuitive and hard to grasp, and so many interactions are difficult to test at all. Trying to fully nail down every part of physics is, oddly enough, a lot like trying to enumerate love, like trying to give it an exact dimension and limits, to make it quantifiable. It's a slippery concept that resists behaving like the rest of the universe, which is what makes both concepts so very interesting. Now then, we are three episodes in, and even though Mai has put a one-month timer on answering his confession, I feel like our couple is a go, right? Maybe they aren't out of the woods yet, and she could still disappear, but it seems like they have faced this first crisis and won. What's more, it is clear to all of us how they feel about one another, and so pretending it is still up in the air for the rest of the season would be a bit silly. I understand Mai's thought process about making sure she's not just caught up in the moment. After all, I made similar comments about why I was glad Sakura didn't actually go for the kiss last time. But I think they are effectively together and will only grow closer from here. Instead, it seems we will now begin facing other people's instances of adolescent syndrome, starting with our short-haired butt-kick girl, Tomoe. I said in the first week that this show is going to remind a lot of people of Origaru or Monogatari, but at this point, it should really, really remind people of Monogatari, especially the first season, Bakemonogatari. This is going to be slightly spoilery, alright, but the parallels are many, and I can't help pointing them out. That show also has the main couple get together early on, and they are then both caught up in the supernatural problems afflicting other girls who wander into the main character's life, which are addressed in sequential mini-arcs. Looking at the opening credits for Bunny Girl Senpai, we might also have five girls whose issues come up. Tomoe, some blonde girl we haven't met yet, his sister Kaede, Mai of course, 
and then Shoko, the girl from his past who wanders through the credits quite a few times. Tomoe is the next mini arc, I would wager, and I would guess that Shoko will be the last, that she may be a type of parallel to Hanikawa, whose Neko Black and Neko White crises bookend Bakemonogatari. Shoko, like Hanikawa, was the girl from before the story began, and there was affection from the main character that never turned into anything. She may then show up in the last arc, and might inspire some romantic insecurity in Mai in the same way Hanikawa does to Sendugahara. Now, I'm sure they aren't going to be carbon copies. Um, the reason I even bring it up is because it is unusual for a romance-focused show to have the main pairing get together so early. Yet we already have the example of Bakemonogatari to compare it to. A lot of the really romantic and endearing scenes between the leads in that show actually come much later. Getting together is not the end of the romance, but really the beginning. I would expect that Bunny Girl Senpai is going to have a similar track, just in case anyone is worried. There is precedent, excellent precedent, for this to buck the usual romantic formula and still be really satisfying. I'm not sure yet, though, whether we are out of the woods for getting our hearts broken, but it does seem a little less likely now. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly on Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.